I've been a big believer in trying to maximize my personal potential on Earth. My personal philosophy on maximizing your personal potential is to talk yourself into situations in which you aren't yet qualified to succeed, but then cutting off the exit, giving yourself no option except to grow to the challenge. There's no more undiscovered territory on Earth. Entrepreneurship is the last frontier that we have. Going to Stanford, Stanford turns out a bunch of, of tech entrepreneurs, and so it was, it was very appealing and aspirational for me to be a tech entrepreneur. My goal isn't to compete with anybody except for who I was yesterday. Building that competition with yourself, not really trying to solve all your problems in one day, but picking a thing that you care about and focusing on being better at that thing than you were the day before. Just be patient and just focus on step-by-step better after better, and that will get you where you want to go. The voice you just heard is Pete Borum. There aren't many prominent tech entrepreneurs who started their journey in small-town Kentucky, and nothing about Pete's story is normal. Venturing from one world to another when he went to Stanford, Pete learned about empathy and embracing different perspectives. He struggled for a while at Stanford, but was later selected class co-president by his peers. Pete's entrepreneurial journey has taken him from selling Cutco through several companies to his current role as founder and managing partner at Squint Labs, where he is using technology and content to combat misinformation and media manipulation. In this conversation, Pete shares his inspirational journey and some of his core philosophies. You'll come to realize why Pete was recently named to Wharton Business School's 40 Under 40 list. This is the story and lessons of tech entrepreneur, Pete Borum. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My guest today is Pete Borum, and Pete sold Cutco back in 2003, 2004, 2005 uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. He went to college at Stanford University, graduated in 07, began his career for a few years before returning to school at uh, Wharton, UPenn, for his MBA in finance. Pete founded Relio which was a company designed to connect influencers and advertisers. He built that company for a number of years, and then he sold it. And he is now the founder of Squint Labs, which is using technology and content to combat misinformation and media manipulation. 
It's highly interesting. We're going to talk about that today, along with a lot of other things. Pete Borum, thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and a shout out to Mike Ambrosino for connecting us here for this episode. Before we hop on, Pete reminded me that he'd actually been to my house once before. So a long time ago when he was at Stanford, came to an event in the Bay Area, and we had some hangout time at my house with a bunch of other Cutco people. And uh, so that's pretty cool. So it's great to be reconnecting with you here today, Pete. Yeah, that's, likewise. Uh, and thanks, thanks also to Mike for me as well. Yeah. Let's have uh, you talk a little bit about your personal background to start. Yeah, sure. So I was raised in Kentucky. I claim Louisville as my home because it's the only city that people are, are really familiar with. It's close to where I'm from, but I grew up in the sticks, literally out in the middle of the woods, gravel roads, barefoot, farm animals, that type of thing. Uh, <laughs> had, had six siblings, some one of seven kids. We were poor is a relative term, but certainly, you know, didn't have much money, didn't have a lot of nice things, had a lot of love in our family and, you know, was able to keep ourselves entertained with, with all the things that you can do in the country. But, uh, that ultimately was a good thing because it helped me to keep focused and not getting in trouble. And, you know, I was able to get good grades and and as you mentioned before, go to, go to Stanford as a result of all of that. Yeah. Fantastic. That's, uh, that's really cool to hear. How did Cutco come into the picture for you? I had been working as a lifeguard for a few summers in high school and then going into college. And Stanford's schedule was weird in that they, they don't let out for the summer until the middle of June. And so by that time, you know, it was too late for me to, to be a lifeguard that summer at the pool looking for a job. Saw an ad in the paper for some company called Vector Marketing. I had no idea what that was. And I showed up and was expecting everything but a knife selling presentation. Um, <laughs> but I was really impressed. You know, that you, we've all seen the presentation. We've all given the presentation. You know, it's very high quality product. So, you know, and, and uh, there was a, the manager at that time was a guy named John Oberg, who is a well-known name in, in certain cut coat circles. And, uh, and so, you know, really liked him, really liked the presentation he gave, really felt, hey, this is something I could do. Uh, at that time, and I'm not sure if this is still the case, you had to pay money to get your, your first kit. Uh, yeah, it's free. To, it's uh, free now, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought, right? So I went to my dad, and my dad was like, "This is a scam. There's no way you should do this." And I was like, "All right, well, listen. I was like, I'll pay you back. Just you, you know, front me the money." And I was able to, you know, I was able to pay him back with my first or second paycheck. And then after I gave him the presentation, and you know, cut the rope and the penny and the, the leather, and he bought a trimmer from me, and and uh, he never second guessed the decision after that point. So it worked out really well. Yeah, that's cool. I should say when it comes to kits. There are no kits right now because we're all on virtual. Yeah. Uh, right. So people get to win stuff in their fast start. They get to win a lot of the items in their first week working with us. But uh, anyway, that's an interesting development that has happened this year. John Oberg. Wow, that's, uh, that's a blast from the past. I can remember John yeah. from when he was in New Mexico, actually. And we were uh, part of the same, you know, roughly the same organization and got to see him at some, some of our events. Tell us about some of your experiences with uh, selling Cutco and what, what were some of the things you learned? Cutco was an awesome experience. I learned so much that I, I've been in business ever since then, and I still apply a lot of the things that I learned at Cutco. Just so much sales fundamentals. This idea of identifying a problem, building rapport, you know, establishing that the, the purpose isn't to show your product, it's to identify a problem that you know, your customer has and, and how can you solve that problem for them keeping the spotlight on the customer and not talking about yourself, the more that they can talk, the better, the more that the less that you talk and the more that you listen, the better learning how to handle rejections and objections, 
hearing no is is part and parcel of a of a, a salesperson's life, but it's part and parcel of anyone's life. And learning how to how to go through those without uh without getting upset, learning how to take a turn a hard no into a soft no by dropping down and offering different you know alternatives. And then basically, I wanted to be one of the top reps, you know, in in Cutco, and, and ended up being the top rep in Kentucky. But uh, that required, you know, waking up early, being super organized, you know, working long hours. And those are all, you know, I think just requirements of any endeavor that you really want to be successful in. So there were a lot of a lot of experiences, a lot of skills. You know, I was a field sales manager and started earning more money than I'd ever had at, at that point. And so it was life changing in a lot of ways. Uh, really had a great experience at Petco. Yeah. And your division manager at the time, was it Dave Powders? Dave Powders. Yeah, Dave is the man, and he's still doing it, right? I love Dave. Yeah, Dave's the d- division manager here in the Bay Area yeah. now, so he took the job. Yeah, he took over your job, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. That's cool. Nice. And so these, this was during your your years at Stanford, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell, us, tell us a little bit about your time at Stanford. What was impactful there? A couple things. One is that I had grown up in, like I mentioned, rural Kentucky, which to go from Kentucky to the Bay Area, uh, a lot of people are aware of the the difference in political spectrum, you know, that those two places inhabit. And so for me, there was a huge difference in being around everybody that I grew up around kind of had very similar religious beliefs, very similar political beliefs, you know, very similar ethnic background and so on. And, and Stanford was very, very different. And so uh, I was exposed to a lot of different perspectives that in a lot of ways undermined and challenged a lot of things that I held to be very deep and dear. I mean, that was a very challenging experience, but I was able to to learn a lot and open my mind to a lot of things that I didn't have otherwise. I also, you know, growing up in a small town, the epitome of the big fish and small pond syndrome, and, you know, getting to Stanford, like I was, I was the best at a lot of things in high school and I wasn't the best at anything at Stanford. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, I was somebody who drew, who derived a lot of my self-worth from my relative standing to others. And so, you know, I, I went through a really hard time as a result of this. I got a bad grade on test, you know, was exposed to partying for the first time, would be depressed from a bad grade, would go and, you know, overdo it at a party, which would kind of affect my grades badly. And that kind of went on a downward spiral. I ended up actually, uh, being suspended from Stanford for a year because my grades were so poor. But during that time, I was still living in the Bay Area, was still hanging out with Stanford kids. I didn't want to let anybody know. Like, you know, I was the first kid from my high school who'd ever gone to a school of that ranking. And so I didn't want to tell anybody at home. You know, I felt like it's such a failure. Uh, and I would hear people at school, you know, talking about, you know, complaining about their problem sets or their homework. Um, and I would think to myself, man, what I wouldn't give to have, you know, to be overloaded with problems that and, you know, tests coming up right now. And so it gave me, I'd been in, you know, school straight from kindergarten to sophomore year in college at that time and gave me a, a break that I needed, a break that I didn't want, but a break that I really needed to reevaluate, re- reprioritize and to shift this idea of I'm only valuable if I can be better than other people to this sense of, you know, my goal isn't to compete with anybody except for who I was yesterday and that, that reframing of priorities and, and value was absolutely essential. And, and I've, you know, it's something that I've maintained ever since that moment. That's an incredible story, Pete. And, and thank you for sharing all of that. There's so much good stuff in there. Uh, what you just said, the impact that having some struggles at Stanford had on your self image that you were used to judging yourself based on a comparative 
sense to other people. That becomes a problem for anyone anytime you elevate in your life. Certainly going from where you were to going to Stanford is a perfect example of that. But even for somebody who you know comes from wherever they are and starts advancing in Vector and Cutco and starts trying to compete at a higher level uh, in a company like ours that's very, very competitive, it starts to become a challenge to, to always be focused on being number one at what you're doing. Because the problem with being number one is only one person can do it, right? Mm-hmm. And learning instead to set goals that are meaningful to you and working toward those goals, I think, is a lot more important than necessarily beating someone else or being the best at something that you're doing. It gets too easy to have that negative impact on one's self-image if you attach it too much to uh, you know the comparative results that you're producing. I thought that was really insightful. I also really like, Pete, when you talked about the exposure to different perspectives and how that sort of shook some of your beliefs up. There's that saying that we become the average of the five people we spend the most time mm-hmm. around. You've probably heard this before. I think it might be mm-hmm. Jim Ronism or from somebody. The reason that's so true is that very gradually, but very, very definitely, we adopt the habit patterns and the beliefs of the people we hang out around. And you grew up in a place where the people you hang out around had certain beliefs and certain habit patterns. And so you naturally developed those habits and those beliefs. Not that any of them are wrong. They may all be right and good, but they're certainly different than what you encountered when you got to Stanford. And I think that it's important for anyone to realize that our perspective is limited by our environment and our surroundings and who we're Mm -hmm. around. And that there may be things that we believe in life that 10 years from now, we'll feel are totally false and we'll think is completely, you know, we'll think the truth is completely different than where we're at now. And it's important to remain open minded to that concept if we're going to grow and evolve as humans. You know, wouldn't you agree with that? I totally agree with that. You know, and, and an analogy that I think of is like imagine that you lived on a beach ball and the beach ball was the size of the entire planet, right? And so you lived on the in the blue section of the beach ball and everywhere that your eyes can see is blue. And so if someone came and told you the world is yellow where I live, you would either think that they're insane or, or stupid or intentionally trying to deceive you. And it's only if you can take a step back and see the ball in its entirety that you have the opportunity to see actually the, the world isn't blue and it's not yellow. It's blue and yellow and white and green and orange and, and all these different things. And because the world is too complex for any one of us to be able to see it in its entirety. The only way that we can do that is by trusting, listening to people who've lived in the yellow section of the beach ball their entire lives or in the red section of the beach ball, understanding their experiences and saying, you know, oh, okay, like, I don't know what it's like to grow up believing the world is yellow, but through my conversations with you, I can get a better sense of what the beach ball looks like. Yeah, such a great point. It's so important to have a sense of real curiosity to get to know the experiences and the insights of other people who are different from us. And and to be able to see that yellow side of the beach ball, you have to have that just genuine curiosity and interest and a a willingness to uh, get to know others and and to dig into that. So that's such a great insight that I think applies to a lot of things, particularly uh, in this day and age right now. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you graduated Stanford in 07, right? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did your career begin evolving in those first few years? So coming from the background that I came from, 
not having a lot of money. I remember when I got into Stanford, my, uh, my parents sat me down and said, Pete, you know, we're, we're really proud of you, but there's no way that we can afford this. And so you're going to have to go somewhere else. You got a scholarship at this other school and you should go there. And I said, well, I thank you, but I'm going no matter what. And I'm going to find a way to make it work. And Cutco was, I was very instrumental in my first couple of years at school and kind of helping to make sure that I had enough to pay the bills and eat and survive. And then I got a job after that at the, uh, at the Stanford Daily newspaper. First, I was selling subscriptions to the paper and then I was working selling advertisements. And, you know, my mom was a music teacher. My dad was a science teacher. I grew up very interested in spectrum of left brain, right brain things. And advertising for me stood out as a very interesting intersection of left brain and right brain. You know, you really need to study the data to understand which audience you're trying to understand. You know, if you're placing 10 different ads, how do you know which ones are the best performing? You have to have a strong sense of analytics and, and numbers. But people don't respond to analytics numbers. They respond to emotional, compelling stories and images and videos and, and things like that. And that requires right brain activity and creativity. So and so I was also earning money to help me survive it at Stanford as well. So I, I got into advertising and I thought this is a pretty cool place. I moved to New York afterward and, uh, you know, following a girl, she was my then girlfriend, now wife. And I got a job in a small digital advertising company there and worked there for a couple of years selling ads and then uh, started a small agency, which I ultimately ended up selling to a, um, a private equity company out of the Midwest. So I moved back to Kentucky for a year and a half because there was a company in the, in 2008, 2009, 2010, I was acquiring a bunch of manufacturing businesses. And so they asked me to, uh, to come on and, and take over branding and communications for the, for the business. And I was, you know, 26 years old and, you know, they had 18 companies and 56 locations in four different countries. And it was supposed to be my job to make them all look the same and sound the same. And from the outside perspective, be one company instead of a conglomerate of, of 18 different companies had no interest really in moving back to Kentucky or, or working in manufacturing, but that challenge was too interesting to me to pass up. And so I did that for a year and a half. We're going to business school and moving back to New York. Oh, wow. Cool to hear how things started evolving for you. What made you make the decision to go uh, back to school for your MBA? So at this company, it's called Repstone I was working at, I was in conversations in which I was the youngest person by, you know, if you double my age, I would still be the youngest person in the room. And so, uh, <laughs> and they were having conversations that were our manufacturing supply chain from China is intersecting with our supply chain here in the U.S. And we were talking about gross margins and COGS and EBITDA and SG&A. And there were just, there's a whole vast vocabulary. They put up a, a, you know, financial statement on the projector and my eyes would just glaze over. And I thought to myself, like, this is a great opportunity that I can't fully take advantage of because I don't have the tools that I need to do so. And so I started looking at executive MBA programs. And, you know, so Wharton had a really strong executive MBA program that I applied to. Uh, I told my boss at the time that, uh, you know, hey, listen, I'm interested in going to, to business school on the weekends. And he's like, well, if you, uh, if you go to Ohio State, which is where he went, then, you know, he, he said he'd sponsor me and pay for it. And, uh, and I was like, okay, cool. And I applied to different things. And I, I got into Wharton and I told him, I was like, well, you know, Ohio State hasn't gotten back to me yet, but I got into Wharton. He's like, forget Ohio State. He's like, you got to go to Wharton. He's like, they, he's like, they rejected me. So you have to go. He's like, <laughs> and he's like, I'll, he said, I'll sponsor the cost of what Ohio State would cost. And you can figure out the, you know, the rest of how you're going to, how you're going to cover it. So, uh, so I started going to Wharton on the weekends. Yeah. That's so funny that, uh, 
they rejected your boss there. So he wanted you to go yeah. there. For yeah. the record, for the record, Stanford rejected me. So kudos to you for being able to get into someplace like that because it sure is pretty hard. Yeah, <laughs> they had to fulfill a, a hillbilly quota and I was just one of the lucky <laughs> two that uh, was right there. So. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So then you ultimately you founded Relio, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us about that. You built your own company. This was over six or seven years before you sold it. Mm-hmm. What were some of the challenges that you faced in that in that time? Oh man, everything is a challenge when you're starting your own company. It is literally the hardest thing I've ever done, and I've I haven't done a lot of easy things. And so uh, people ask me all the time whether they you know they've got they've got an idea for a company. They're like, do you think I should start a company? And I always tell them no. And it's not because I don't believe that people should be entrepreneurs. It's just that I think that as a society, we kind of fetishize the the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Jeff Bezoses, and we tell these stories of meteoric success, and that is not at all typical. And I don't think that people hear enough just the the effects that starting a company has on your mind and your body and your soul and your bank account is just crushing in so many different ways. And so if I tell people, no, you shouldn't start a business and they say, okay, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Then I'm like, all right, well, we have a conversation to have. But if they say, oh, well, maybe I won't then, then I've done them a huge favor because they weren't going to make it anyways if my no is is enough to discourage them. But just in the beginning, it's really about you don't have anything and you you need to get everything. And the only thing that you can do is to convince people that you're capable of putting the right pieces together. So, you know, I didn't have a founding team and I've got to, uh, and I've got to recruit them, but I don't have any money to pay them. I've got to get investors to put money into the business, but I don't have a product or a team to build the product yet. And so it's a lot of kind of playing both sides against the other thing and being honest, but, but also being creative and saying, you know, to the founding team that I wanted to hire, Hey, listen, I'm having these conversations with this investor. They're interested in the idea, but they're only willing to invest if, you know, if you guys are in it full time, which is true. And then talking to the investor and saying, you know, I've got this founding team over here, but they're only willing to jump in and join it full time if you're willing to invest, which is true. But you have to constantly kind of put those pieces together to get two people that you need to do things when you couldn't do it. You know, you don't have what you need to offer them on their own. Building that confidence, maintaining that confidence, building a team that is trusting you to, to pay them on a regular basis. The stress of keeping up with that payroll is enormous getting that team to stick with you when, you know, Google buys your biggest competitor, when things aren't going the right way. There's just myriad challenges on a daily basis. And you never know, you never know how things are going to fall apart. You just know that they are going to consistently and you have to just be on the ball and go through it dispassionately. You know, Elon Musk said entrepreneurship is, is like eating glass and staring into the abyss. You know, I think it's like, you know, just showing up and getting punched in the stomach every day repeatedly and just doing it with a smile on your face when no one thinks it's a problem. You know, it's, uh, it's tough. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. What were some of the reasons why you wanted to take on this sort of a challenge? I've always been big on challenges. My personal philosophy on maximizing your personal potential is to talk yourself into situations in which you aren't yet qualified to succeed, but then cutting off any exit, giving yourself no option except to grow to the challenge. And so I've been a big believer in trying to maximize my personal potential on earth. And there was a uh, business library that I used to go to in New York all the time. And they had a bunch of quotes on the wall. And they talked about, and one of them said something along the lines of, there's no more undiscovered territory on earth. Entrepreneurship is the last frontier that we have. And so for me, that it was always very appealing. I always had this idea 
going to Stanford, Stanford turns out a bunch of, of tech entrepreneurs. And so it was, it was very appealing and aspirational for me to be a tech entrepreneur. And then you get into it and you start digging. And then eventually you realize that you've dug yourself in so deep that there's, it's impossible to climb out. You, you have no choice but just to keep digging. And so uh, I wanted to maximize myself in the beginning, but then I wanted to make sure that I didn't let down you know, all my investors and all my employees and you know, all my partners. And that was what kind of kept me going through the dark days, halfway through and beyond. Yeah, yeah. So can, can you speak to the pressure that one feels uh, leading a company? Totally. It, uh, it is, you can't really be fully honest about how you're feeling with anyone. You need a coach who's completely unrelated to it so that you do have someone to talk to. Because like I mentioned before, you're constantly trying to instill confidence in people to give you something that you need that you can't yet pay them back for. And you can't do that if you share with them all of the worries and fears that are on your mind at any given moment that right. does not instill confidence. You know, so my employees couldn't know exactly how scared and stressed out I was. My investors couldn't know how scared and stressed out I was. My wife couldn't know how scared and stressed out I was. She was a huge reprieve for me when I would leave work. I wanted someone who could help me take my mind off of all the things that were going on. And so if I shared with her just how stressed out I was and she'd get stressed out now then I get more stressed out. You know, so it's a very lonely path in a lot of ways because you constantly are, are trying to satisfy a bunch of different people. And in another analogy, it's like playing multiple games of chess simultaneously against different people. You, you're playing one game with your employees and one game with your customers and one game with your suppliers and one game with your investors. And moves that you make on one board limit the moves that you can make on the other boards. But the people that you're playing with can only see the board that is in front of them. You know, so... I've got obligations to my suppliers or to my customers or to my investors that limit the moves that I can make with my employees. And the employees think, well, why wouldn't you just do this? It just makes perfect sense that you would do X, Y, and Z. And X, Y, and Z are not available to me because those options have been cut off from other conversations or other constraints that I have. And so keeping people apprised of what's going on in a way that they can understand the decisions that you're making so that you don't seem like an idiot to them without letting on how stressed out and scared you are the whole time is a balancing act that is just really, really challenging to maintain all the time. Yeah. Wow. Trying to find that right balance with transparency mm -hmm. with your people, but not saying so much that people might feel scared themselves or turned off yeah. themselves. Yeah. That seems like an interesting balance to try to find. I love what you said about needing a coach who's completely unrelated you need to have somebody you can talk to, right? Where you can be totally mm -hmm. open and totally transparent. And that doesn't just apply to being an entrepreneur. That is very true in life, right? It's so important to have people in your life that you can have open, candid conversations with about the challenges that you're facing. And it isn't always your family that you can do that with because sometimes the challenges are within the family, right? And you have to be able to have some sort of outside influence that you can reach to and talk to that can give you input, that can offer uh, ideas and concepts and feedback and give you food for thought, right? Right, exactly. And you know, this is a related but separate topic, but this is why I strongly believe that everybody should go see a therapist at some point just because there are aspects of ourselves that we feel that we can't share with anyone. Things that we've done, things that we've said, things that we worry about. We wouldn't feel comfortable telling our mom. We wouldn't feel comfortable telling 
you know, our sisters or brothers or anyone, but there are people out there that you can talk to that you can just fully unload everything that's in your brain. And just in the process of articulating a lot of these thoughts, so many things just get jumbled up in your brain in a mess in the process of having to put it into a word, into a single narrative that makes sense is oftentimes, you know, incredibly valuable. But yeah, just in, in the world of business and life in general, finding someone that you trust that will listen to you non-judgmentally and, and that you feel that you can share without undermining or jeopardizing the things that are important to you is, I think, incredibly important. Highly recommend it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's powerful. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now. Let's talk about your, your current company, Squint Labs, and sure. what it is. And let's get into that. Tell us about yeah, it. Yeah, sure. So, so uh, the past couple of years of my um, experience at, uh, uh, at Relio, there's a lot of stuff going on in society. And it doesn't matter where you fall in the political spectrum. You look around and you say, okay, things are serious right now. And it's easy to, to get caught up in it and to care a lot about it. And it's difficult, actually, to not care about it, I think. Um, and so I was spending all my daytime hours, you know, working with uh, uh, Instagram celebrities and YouTube celebrities to help advertisers like Revlon, uh, you know, sell lipstick and, you know, through makeup tutorials on Instagram and things like that. And I felt as though that wasn't very meaningful or impactful to society more broadly. Um, and so... We sold our company to a uh, subsidiary of AT&T WarnerMedia. I worked there for a year uh, doing some pretty interesting things on their internal venture capital and mergers and acquisitions team. And uh, But I ultimately left and wanted to do something that I felt could leverage my experiences, leverage my skills, leverage my network, my know-how, but also that was totally aligned with my personal values. Are you familiar with this concept of Ikigai? Ikigai, yes. Yeah, so I was, I was looking for my ikigai, the, the intersection of what I was good at, what I can make money at, what the world needs, and what I like to do, uh, which is really yes. hard to do. And so for me, what stood out was misinformation. There are a lot of videos that are going out right now that have been manipulated. There's an app called Reface where you can put your face on any celebrity and you know put your face into a uh, into a music video or an action scene. It's a really cool technology, but it's really terrifying at the same time. You can imagine some of the things that, you know, Warren Buffett, someone takes being Warren Buffett and says, you know, the economy's screwed, you know, sell everything, right? Like the, the havoc that, that could wreak on our, on our stock market, the havoc that would happen if certain, you know, political leaders came on and, and said things to their audiences that, you know, would, would create more problems than we're currently facing, right? So for me, this focus of how do we live in a world where we can trust what we see is very important. You know, mm-hmm. if, uh, if, if truth sets us free, then what does it mean if we don't even know what's true anymore? What can we possibly be free? And so I, uh, I started having conversations with people who were doing interesting things in that space, just really trying to learn. And I came to this approach of what I think of as offense versus defense. And on the defensive side, we invest in companies that are developing technology that can help to, to inoculate you against misinformation. So technology I was talking about with the face replacement is called deep fakes. So there are companies that can do deep fake detection. You know, we've seen Twitter bots and Russian trolls and, you know, just fake accounts on Twitter and Facebook sharing things. Is there a way to detect that? There are technology companies that can do that. We've seen articles that are completely fabricated and didn't happen. Are there technologies that can fact check articles in real time so that you can quickly get a sense of whether what you're reading is true or not? We're working with a number of startups. This is a multifaceted problem. There's no single silver bullet solution. So we're working with a number of companies that are addressing that through technology in a number of different ways. So that's the defensive side of it. 
And on the offensive side, we want to help create content that counterbalances the misinformation that's out there. If you think about a courtroom scenario where the prosecutor paints a, a picture that's totally unrealistic and the judge says, jury, disregard that remark, right? But unless someone's able to get up on the defense, the defendant is able to get up on the stand and provide an alternative story, that jury can never disregard that remark. It's stuck in their brain and, and it's there, right? right? Same thing if you've been exposed to misinformation, if you've been exposed to a story that's a lie and you were never exposed to the counterpart to that story, you know, to the truth, then you have no choice but to believe what you heard, right? So leveraging what we've learned with helping advertisers to sell, you know, to work with Instagram personalities and YouTube personalities to sell lipstick, we're now working with, you know, scientists and engineers and nonprofits and government organizations, economists who can provide talking points and facts to these same, you know, internet personalities. They wake up in the morning, they tweet a picture of their toast and they get a million likes, right? But that person could talk about things that are a little bit more substantive and they can do so confidently because they've got facts from people who know the truth, then that provides the offensive side of it. And so that's that offense versus defense approach is what is what we focus on at Splint Labs. Yeah. Wow. That that sounds like a, a massive undertaking and so challenging. Like how do you screen some of these people who you're you're using to provide the offensive side? Like how do you know that an economist that you're talking to is providing truth versus just providing their own perspective of truth? So I think that finding absolute truth is a challenging endeavor, right? Go back to the beach ball analogy that we talked about, right? It is true to the person who lives in the blue zone of that beach ball that their world is blue. But describing the world as blue from them is true, but it's not the whole picture and it's not the truth, right? So it's important for us that rather than focusing on whether something is true or not, it's how strong is the supporting evidence behind what it is that's being said. If you've got original footage of something that's happened and you can prove that footage uh, has not been manipulated in some way, that's a lot stronger than just saying or relying on a video that your cousin sent you on Facebook, right? Right. And so a lot of the technology that we're talking about, we use as a way to verify and fact check and and provide some, some basis that creates confidence for this person to be able to say, this is true about this topic. We don't encourage anyone to say, this is the absolute truth about this topic. But if the things that they're saying, you could make two arguments that are both totally true and both totally contradictory to each other. But it's making sure that those arguments are rooted in fact. That's really the important thing for us. We're not trying to tell people what to believe or how to interpret the information, but we want to make sure that information that is factual and is based is getting out there to the public. Yeah. I, I feel like the the basis of this the, the whole concept of helping people to overcome misinformation is training people to be open-minded. It's training people to, mm-hmm. to have critical thinking. It's training people not to just mindlessly click share on some meme they see on their social media feed without taking 30 seconds to like actually research or 60 seconds or yeah. whatever it takes to research, yeah. right? And, and get into it. Because I see people promoting stuff on social media that is like utterly false. I've probably accidentally promoted stuff that, uh, you know, wasn't accurate before because I didn't take the time to like look into it myself. And I feel like I'm pretty open-minded. I've, you know, got pretty good critical thinking and try to be able to uh, suss through that kind of stuff. 
but it, I feel like it, the starting point is just like training people to have an openness. It circles back to what you talked about when you went to Stanford and you realized there were all these other different types of ways of thinking and different types of people. And, you know, the world was a lot different than it was in your, you know, your bubble in Kentucky. And um, yeah. I, I think that uh, p- people have to start from that standpoint, that an understanding that not everything I think is accurate and let me be open to other sides of the story let me always be inquisitive and ask questions and dig in and get to know and uh through that process is how i think that we can we can kind of come to our own truths i guess you could say yeah yeah like i mentioned before is the person who lives in the blue area assumes that anyone who tells them the world is yellow is either evil or stupid or intentionally trying to deceive them then they'll never learn about the world they live in beyond what they can see with their own eyes but if we assume the world is full of people who've experienced things that we haven't, who have done things that we haven't, who have learned things that we don't know yet, and that every person that we meet is an opportunity to build a more complete picture of the world than we currently have, then we have a fighting chance. And so I certainly think that the more people who follow that approach, the better off we are. But I think that if we depend on people to follow that approach, then we're we're fighting a losing battle. Uh, right. you know, how can how can you create systems and engineer approaches that can stand up to people who have a vested interest in telling you that the person who thinks the world is yellow is is lying to you, right? Right. And so, uh, so I'm I'm very interested in you know behavioral change, but I'm also interested in in systems. How you account for failure of personal behavior into the systems themselves? Mm, mm. Really, really interesting. What do you feel like the future holds for Squint Labs and, and for you? Oh, man. Well, think about the people who... So let's assume, let's assume for a second that Vladimir Putin is interested in putting out misinformation, right? Vladimir Putin has a lot more resources than I have and will ever have. He can print his own currency. He's got, you know, legions of people who can, can go out and put out, you know, fake articles and, and do this stuff. So... Nothing less than, I think, a society-wide coalition to stand up and say, the truth matters. We're not going to, to tolerate disinformation. We're not going to tolerate being lied to the way that we are. Is going to be uh, sufficient. An analogy might be, you know, how can you stand up against big tobacco as an individual person who wants to, uh, you know, who, who wants to breathe clean air? And it, it required society to say, hey, listen, you know, this is causing big problems. We don't want you selling this stuff to our kids anymore, blah, blah, blah. And, I'm, and you know, no, anybody who, who takes the personal choice to smoke cigarettes, is their, that's their choice. But society should have a say in these, in these decisions. And so for me, I'm really focused on how do we not try to solve the problem ourselves, but how do we orient the vast majority of people who value the truth, who want to be well-informed, who believe that people who are spreading this information should stop spreading that misinformation or that believe that we should have some recourse to protect ourselves against the misinformation. I'm working to build that coalition and to provide that kind of, you know, of layer of protection for people. And so because the gap between where I am today and where Putin is, for example, is so huge, I don't see this being, you know, a, a project that I can work on for a year or two and say, okay, I won, you know, it's over. Problem solved. Let's go. This is a problem that I hope to work on in a meaningful way until we as a society have come up with solutions to it. And otherwise, you know, it becomes, you know, it becomes my life's work. Yeah. Well, it sounds inspiring. 
and definitely something that will uh, that will challenge you. I know you said you appreciate challenges. This sounds like something that will challenge you for a lifetime, and and is meaningful and worth and worthwhile work. So that's pretty awesome to hear. You got any uh, last words of advice you would share to the young audience of Cutco reps, Cutco managers, alumni? Well, this is cliche in the world of Cutco, but follow the program. It really does work. It's all about life is a series of doing the right thing over and over and over and over again. It doesn't require any particular genius. It doesn't require you to, to win the lottery or to stumble into you know an opportunity that is unavailable to anyone else. It just requires you to wake up and do the right things every day. And I think that, to my earlier point, building that, that sense of competition with yourself, not really trying to solve all your problems in one day, but picking a thing that you care about and focusing on being better at that thing than you were the, the day before. We underestimate what we can do in 10 years, but we overestimate what we can do in a year. And so just be patient and just focus on step-by-step, better after better, and that, uh, that will get you where you want to go. Yeah, that's great. And it'll get, it'll get you to places that you would never know that you could go. You know, the world is the world is far too complicated for us. I've never had a job at a company that I even knew existed a year before I started working there. You know, so the world is a very vast and complicated and interesting place. And uh, like Thomas Jefferson said, I believe in luck. And the harder I work, the luckier that I get. You know, you just have to, uh, you have to do the right things and then the right opportunities will present themselves to you. Definitely. That was some great input, Pete. The, the concept of just getting better and getting better it might not have a huge impact from today to tomorrow or from this week to next week, but over time, it does have a powerful impact. And I do feel like for most people, there's a point where they really do have a quantum leap and you just don't know exactly when that's going to be. But as you continue to improve and improve in what you're doing, there does come this point where everything just seems to align and you move up at a much faster clip than you ever thought was possible. So it's cool to hear about all the success you've had. It's cool to hear what you're doing now. You have found your guy with what you're doing. Yeah. And that's really a cool thing to hear, Pete. And thanks so much for all your input here on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dan. It was a good time. Appreciate it. Awesome. What a powerful conversation that was with Pete Borum. Really cool to hear how Pete grew up as a country kid with six siblings in you know, Kentucky in the woods and then ended up going to Stanford University. And those two totally different worlds collided for him and provided him with exposure to a lot of new perspectives. I think that at some level, everybody can relate to that in that we we do venture from one world to another as we evolve through our life. Maybe not as stark a contrast as what Pete experienced, but we do venture from one world to another and we meet people with different perspectives. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be an open-minded person and to not get caught up in a rut of our way of thinking. And when somebody disagrees with you, it's really important to take that in as an opportunity to see another side of the story, another side of the beach ball, as Pete described. The great venture capitalist out here in Silicon Valley, Mark Andreessen, has a saying that he calls strong beliefs loosely held, right? Strong beliefs, of course, is, you know, we're confident in our path and in what we're doing and sharing what we're doing and sharing what we think, but we're not so arrogant or so stubborn that we can't see another perspective when it's offered to us 
particularly when someone who we respect contradicts us or has something else to say or some other side to show us. That was incredibly valuable. Um, I thought it was interesting to hear Pete describe how his self-worth was really related to his performance in comparison to others. And when he was the big fish in a small pond, it was easy to feel like he was on top of the world. Then going to Stanford, you know, he wasn't the best at anything when he got there. And yet, why it's important to put ourselves into situations where we aren't necessarily the best. Or as Pete said, toss yourself in situations where you aren't really qualified, right? And then give yourself the chance to step up to that. That applies to advancing in Vector and Cutco and in any element in our career, right? Choosing the steep learning curve is a critical element of success. And judging ourselves, not based on a comparative sense, but more based on our trajectory. Are we improving? Are we learning? Are we getting better? Are we moving up? Right? Because judging ourselves based on others can be very, very difficult to do at times. And it could be somewhat of a, of a trap that you fall into. Pete found his ikigai, as he said. We'll put a diagram of this in the show notes, but it's that intersection of what you love what you're good at, what you can be paid for, and what the world needs. And when you can find that intersection, right, that's your ikigai. And uh, Pete found that with Squint Labs. It's great to see what he is doing there. And it was interesting to hear him say that, you know, he decided to sell Relio because he felt like what he was doing was not meaningful to society. So he was missing that what the world needs side. And again, I can't help but say for any of you who are a manager at Vector and Cutco, right, that uh, you are providing something the world needs and that, you know, our young people need development. Our young people need influence. They need mentors. They need people to help them see a lot of these concepts we've talked about in this podcast today. And that is very, very meaningful and very, very powerful. Pete said life is a series of doing the right thing over and over and over again. Having people to guide you, coach you, mentor you, having a program to follow are all key elements of that success. And having a coach who you can talk to candidly and share what you're thinking and share how you're feeling, who can give you their insights, their perspectives, and their tips. Awesome insight as well. So much good stuff. Really an amazing young leader, Mr. Pete Borum. Hope you enjoyed that and that you can find your ikigai in your life. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.